Amen, amen, amen. Would you join me again in praying together? Uh, Father, thank you that we are free today, free from fear. We don't have to worry about tomorrow. You've got it. Uh, we, we are free from condemnation. We are free from the normal trappings and enslavements that the world and the culture is so wrapped up about. We, we are free from caring about things that are too small. <laughs> you give us the opportunity to live large and for our lives to matter. So we're free from smallness. I'm grateful for that. And I pray as we step into today and we step into the study of your word here that you would indeed let the freedom that Jesus has purchased for us become experiential in us. So we don't live small, little myopic lives, but instead get to live with the breadth and the beauty and the amazing um, size. Our lives would match the size of your kingdom. So help us to step into that. That's what I'm asking now. And would you do so, do so in us for Jesus' sake? And here in the room and at home, why don't you take just a moment and finish that prayer. Say whatever it is that you need to say to God. Now, Father, for the sake of your kingdom among us, those in the room, those who've gathered with us online, we ask that you would go to work and don't let us up until you've done exactly what you want to do in us so that we can be the people that you want us to be and you can accomplish your work through us. We put all this in your hands now, in Jesus' name, and everybody said amen and amen. You can have a seat. Thank you so very, very much. Glad you're here today. Again, my name is Trent, and I have the privilege of uh, being the pastor here. Uh, for those of you that I haven't gotten to meet, glad to uh, glad you you joined us today. For those of you watching online, thanks again uh, for being here. We're going to open our Bibles to the book of James, chapter 1. James, chapter 1. And uh, this sits in um, this series, and I'm, I'm amazed, actually, at how God orchestrated it. I could have never done this. I'm not smart enough uh, to do this. But um, today, as we... Um, kind of pause in our textual progress through um, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, we're actually hitting a theme that's really important. So today is Orphan Sunday. For those of you who didn't know, every uh, early part of November, every year, um, we take some time and we pause and we say, man, uh, this is an important thing to God. And so it's an important thing to us. It's built into our DNA as a church family. And many people have uh, jumped in and participated. So we're ta- pausing to talk about Orphan Sunday, but it's not as if the theme uh, of, of Orphan Sunday has somehow gone like gone away from what we've been talking about. Uh, and so I want to talk about how this fits for just a second. This is how it doesn't fit. Uh, this is a good thing in my house. I have kids who are old enough um, to do laundry. Anybody at home want to celebrate that with me? So just this weekend, I said to them, you, 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 you're responsible for washing a load, drying a load and folding a load. This is a good thing. Washing a load, drying a load. Okay, we'll do it. We'll take care of it on occasion. And this doesn't happen all the time, but on occasion, uh, in the middle of washing, drying and folding the wrong, uh, or excuse me, an item gets put in the wrong stack. Anybody with me there? And so it's really dark in the morning at my house and I'm up the, er- the earliest. And so on occasion, I'll go to my t-shirt drawer, go to pull it out and I go to put it on. And one of two things is true in that moment. Either 
Something got put in my stack that doesn't belong there because I am not a size small or I ate way too many tacos the night before. And when we talk about it, you know, this idea of Orphan Sunday fitting, we're not talking about like that, okay? We are instead talking about uh, four or so years ago, we moved into the house where we live. We planted an orange tree, and we're getting these little bitty, little bitty oranges coming um, off of that orange tree. They're still not very sweet. or just hadn't gotten to that point of maturity yet. But we would expect oranges to come off an orange tree. Why? Because it's an orange tree, right? If we had apples, that would also be not fitting, Apples don't come off of orange trees. So in the same way, the kingdom, as it takes root, if you will, inside of us, expresses itself in some ways that God uniquely and particularly cares about. And so here we are at Orphan Sunday, and the argument today is going to be this, that the, one of the ways that God expresses his kingdom through us is uh, in orphan care. And so um, I want to, as we've done for weeks on weeks now. I want to just back up, catch a little traction, and then we'll jump into James um, chapter one. So uh, last week, the idea was that Jesus fulfills the law for us. This is what Jesus has done. He fulfills the law for us, but then he also fulfills the law in us. For us is really good news because my obedience doesn't have to count for my own account, for my own life. If, I, if my right standing with God was dependent upon my obedience to God, you know how long that would last? How far that would go? Not very far. And I'm just looking in the room here. I know plenty of your stories, and this is what I know to be true. You are all exceptionally good sinners, every one of you. We don't have to look very far over our shoulder to figure out, man, we we can step out of line and miss the mark in a heartbeat. And so if, if my right standing with God is dependent upon me and my obedience... I'm in bad shape. So Jesus comes along and he lives the life that I could never live. And then he dies a death that I deserve to die, but I could never die and do so in a redemptive way. Jesus' obedience is credited to me so that my, excuse me, so that I have right standing with God. So he fulfills the law for us. And then um, he uh, comes to live inside of me by his Holy Spirit, and he goes to work on me so that my life then reflects his kind of obedience. He, he goes and he, he, he moves inside of me. He goes to work inside of me, and um, he, he begins to change me. And I just I want to point out something. We left um, out of the sermon last week kind of on purpose, but uh, I just want to point this out that this is what God said would happen. This is what God said would happen. I'll put a couple of Old Testament verses up before you so that you see this. This is Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33. I will put my law within them. And what is he going to do? I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they will be my people. So if God goes to work and writes his law on my heart, amen, what would you expect to come out of me is, is an obedience that looks like Fulfilling the law. This is Ezekiel chapter 36, uh, verse 26, 27. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put inside of you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to take out the hard part, so to speak. And I'm going to give you something living. And I will put my spirit within you. And don't miss this part. 
and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So when Jesus, the law fulfiller, comes to live inside of us, our lives are transformed so that we keep the kind of law that Jesus, uh, we, we, we express, our lives express the kind of obedience that Jesus himself expressed. So this is what the Old Testament said. This is what it said. Now, I want to reiterate what we said last week one more time. The law then is not the source of our righteousness. It is not, it is not the place from which my righteousness comes. I don't keep the rules and thus am made right with God. It's not the source, but it is the course of our righteousness. When Jesus lives inside of me and expresses his life through me, my life looks like his obedience. And so um, this is what God said would, would happen. Then my life comes along and it begins, as Jesus goes to work inside of me, it begins to reflect the truth and the goodness and the wisdom of the law. My transformed life begins to look like compliance to his commands. Again, it is not the course of our right, excuse me, it is the course of our righteousness, not the source of our righteousness. And my life then reflects this truth and this wisdom and this goodness of the law. And this is what we see in the book of James. Now, here we go. This, um, in the Bible app, and many of you are using it, I don't think I actually put verse 26, and that's my mistake. But I want to read verse 26 and 27 together of James chapter 1. If anyone thinks he's religious and doesn't bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So let's just pause here. Where is James aiming for? Our words? No. What's he aiming for? Our hearts, that's what he's after. Now, this is exactly what Jesus has done. And James, being the little brother of Jesus, it makes good sense here. James is aiming for what Jesus aimed for. He's aiming for our hearts. And so what he's saying is, if, you can't, if you're not bridling your tongue, then you know that something is going wrong in here. Here's the deal. What is going on in here? The dynamics of your heart do express themselves in the way that we live and the things that we say. You want to know what's going on in here? Just listen to the things that come out of our mouths or off of our fingertips and keyboards. It is a good diagnostic for us because my life is supposed to reflect the truth and the goodness and the wisdom of what God has said. And if I'm missing the mark here, it will show up in the things that I say and the actions that I take. He's aiming for the heart. This is a heart issue. Verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God our Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction or in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So James here is aiming at our heart because he knows. And here's what I don't want you to miss. Some people think Christianity lives more a part of our world and living in this world unstained and taking care of those around us who need to be taken care of. Jesus is using the mouth of the pen of James to say, hey, this has everything to do with your everyday life. It's not religion in some kind of ethereal sense. This is religion in a very real life sense. This is what Jesus is doing. This is what he's after. So he takes these transformed people. My life begins to reflect this. And then he takes these transformed people and he gathers communities of disciples. He gathers those followers into communities that we call the church. 
And then their lives collectively begin to reflect the truth and the goodness and the wisdom of the law. And they do that together. They do that together. So my life is reflective of this. But then as I am a part of a church to follow, who are just from the stands, who aren't just fascinated and asking questions, but who are followers. I'm committed. As I join into this group of followers, then our life collectively, together, we express the truth and the goodness and the wisdom of the law. So you may think to yourself, well, what would that look like? What would it look like if a group of people gathered together and committed their lives to follow Jesus? Um, what, would, what would those expressions look like? Well, I'm so glad you asked. I want to hearken back about 1900 years. Can we do a little time warp here? Um, there's a guy named Larry Hurtado. He's a professor at a um, university in Scotland. He's wicked smart and uh, he knows everything about the early church. He really does. And he, he wrote a book fairly recently uh, ago that is called um, The Destroyer of the Gods. The destroyer of the gods. And his thesis is, is that Jesus the Messiah and those who committed their lives to follow him so disrupted the social and religious order of their day that it actually destroyed it. Now, not in the sense, not in the sense that you and I think about destruction. Let's take a bomb or let's take a sword or something. No, no. They did it through this, these, these five particular ways and that's how it disrupted. So um, what would it look like for a group of people committed, who committed their lives to Jesus to gather together and to follow him and uh, he would write their law, his law on their hearts and then they would express that together? What would that look like? Here, here's what Hurtado says. The early church was concerned about these five things. First of all, racial tensions because you had people all throughout the Roman Empire at the time uh, who were from different places. They had different skin colors. They were from different backgrounds. They were from different religions, all this kind of thing. And the church was saying, hey, it really matters when we put our lives in the hands of Jesus. It really matters in how we treat one another. I know that you look differently than me. I know you came from North Africa and I came from the Middle East and you guys over there, you're European. I know we look a lot different, but here we are worshiping Jesus, sharing communion. Stuff matters in the early church. Jew, Jew, Gentile, again, folks from every kind of walk of life, racial tensions. They, they also, the church was, early church was concerned with economic. They, you know, God has blessed some people and other people have needs. And so we all want to be good stewards of everything that God has given us. And so when we gather together, we want to be people who think of our lives and think of our, our, our possessions as we are managers of the things that we want to be concerned about those things. On one side, um, a, a third thing is what simply Hurtado says there's kind of sexual ethics. Um, in the Roman Empire in the first century, man, anything went. You got to define your own version of sexuality and you could baptize it in any number of ways to make it not only culturally acceptable, but actually like something that other people wanted to join, uh, join in. But, but the early church held on to the biblical standard of sexuality as, if you will, kind of a circle. It says, hey, inside of this circle... God has blessed sexuality and that circle is defined by, the edge of that circle is defined by the covenant of marriage between a husband and a wife. So inside of this covenant of marriage between husband and wife, the answer is yes. Outside of this covenant relationship between husband and wife, the answer is no. It brings this 
destruction and chaos and all sorts of things, not only to our own lives, but also to a broader uh, a culture. Then Hurtado says they were concerned about orphan issues, what you and I in our modern parlance would call being pro-life. They were concerned about these things. In Roman culture, it was actually not only acceptable, but at times um, the thing to do. Uh, if a, if a, a lady had a baby that she didn't want, she would just simply cast the baby off, just leave it. Christians would come along and say, oh, no, 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 we're going to take care of this. We're going to take care of this baby. I think that's the base imp. Is that what it is? Can I just turn it off? Is that okay? Thank you for those of you clapping for me. I'll be here all week, people. Yeah, smart Alex. Here we are talking about something important, and here you can, no, I'm just kidding. So, th- those four things, th- those four things. We're going to get to the fifth thing in just a second, but can we just pause here for a moment? Because I know that those top four things there that I listed have nothing to do with 21st century life, right? And uh, again, on the screen here um, in the room, and certainly at home, if the, if the slide will come back up, so I, I, I put them this way on purpose. On the left side, economic inequities, things that they're concerned about. On the right side, sexual ethics, babies, orphans, and pro-life issues. On the left side, racial tensions, economic inequities. On the right side, sexual ethics and pro-life issues. Nobody has anything to I mean, it doesn't apply to our lives as we know it right now, Correct. Here's what I want to say. Here's what I want to say. This fifth one that Hurtado identifies is actually one place where I think the church has struggled in our day and in our age. This priority of relationship that says, I see you. You look differently than me. You think differently than me. You vote differently than me. You think that this particular solution to this particular social issue uh, is the way to go. And I'm saying, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I think this particular solution to that particular social issue, like, but they prioritized relationship. They prioritized um, reconciliation over retaliation. That they prioritized patience with one another. The Bible says it, bear with one another over anger and bitterness toward others. They prioritized um, uh, forgiveness over bitterness. Why? Not, listen, not because the issue didn't matter. Well, I got more to say about that in just a second. But not because the issue didn't matter, but because the relationship mattered more. You notice nobody actually gets argued into the kingdom of God. What happens instead is they cross a bridge, most often called relationship, to come into the kingdom of God. And so they prioritize relationship because it was the relationship that was the bridge that often brought people in. in brought people into the kingdom. Brought people into relationships. So this is what the early church was concerned about. And I, this is how I want to say this. This is an aside, and we'll move on from this quickly. But in light of our week, the church transcended these issues and whatever politics may be around them. And may, church family, may this be true of us. The church transcended these issues, listen, because they didn't see them as issues. 
They saw them as opportunities for obedience in ministry. And not some of them, not just the ones on the side that they liked, but they saw it as opportunities for obedience in ministry for all of them. All of them. So today, today is an opportunity for us to let our hearts engage, that things would get stirred deep down inside of us. And this is how I've been praying past our emotions, past our, even our, our way of thinking, God would um, use the word to, to uh, stir us up deep in the, in the deepest parts of who we are. Why? Uh, because Jesus needs to do that in us in order to fulfill the law through us. Last thing I'll say, and we're moving on. Folks, it's too easy to be politically pro-life, and that's where we stop. I mean, check in a box, that's too easy. Jesus doesn't aim that shallow. Politicians come and go, policies come and go. Listen, he wants us to be a part of something so much deeper. He wants to fulfill the law through us. He wants to transform us. So let's jump in here to James chapter 1, verse 27. Religion that's pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction or their distress to keep oneself unstained from the world. It's Orphan Sunday. I want to just raise the flag for orphan and orphan care here. And I want to use the word that uh, the Bible uses here. It says to visit widows and orphans. And um, it, it's, it's more than just stop by and, you know, bring them a pie or some brownies or something like visit. The word there is episkopos. Does anybody recognize an English word that we could, uh, it's in the uh, italics here, episkopos, like episcopal. Um, it's, a, it's a word that the Bible uses over and over again as uh, an expression of overseeing, to watch over somebody, to watch over somebody. So this is what we're talking about, watching over, watching over orphans. So what would it look like if in our lives and in our life collectively as a church family, we together watched over orphans? Well, I don't know what that would look like. Well, let's take our cues from God. How did he watch over orphans? Now, we could have done this from any number of passages in the Bible. I, I pulled them all from the Psalms. Here, here's the first one. God allies with them. He makes himself their ally. And when we're saying that, we're not just saying, hey, kind of, I'm on your team. I'm wearing your jersey. You and I are in this. No, no. God like steps in and identifies himself with them. Jesus, Matthew 25, uh, if you've done this to the least of these, you've done this to me, to me. Over and over again, we see God allying himself with um, orphans. And so this is Psalm 68, verse 5. The father of the fatherless and protector of the widows is God in his holy habitation. And don't miss that. He didn't say, hey, I'm going to write a check. I'm going to send a gift to the fatherless. I, I really care about them. No, no, no. He becomes, he said, I'm stepping into a relationship. I'm putting myself on their side. I'm drawing them to me. I'm going to hold up the umbrella, so to speak, to kind of cover them. I'm allying myself with them. I am the father of the fatherless. You want to know what it's like to be me in my holy habitation? I am the father of the fatherless. I'm allying with these orphans. Secondly, God advocates for them. Now, all throughout the Bible, uh, we see particular expressions of God saying this. And I'll just give you a couple of examples real quick before we read this, this particular uh, passage from Psalm 82. But um, uh, in the law, uh, some of the teachings, the those hard parts of the Old Testament where you're trying to read and you're like falling asleep because you don't really understand it all. Like in there, there's some beautiful stuff. Like if you own a field, 
Yeah, go, go harvest the wheat. That's great. Leave some on the outside for the widows and the orphans. And if you do so, God will bless you. You're like, leave some? Yes, leave some. God will bless you. Don't worry about it. And over and over and over again, we see God through his law, through the teaching that he left with the people of God, to, uh, we see that he advocates for orphans. This is Psalm 82, verse 3. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. He's saying, do this. Give justice to the weak and to the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Give justice to them. He's advocating for them. Through the law, through the teaching that he leaves with his people. He's saying, hey, don't forget about these. He allies with them, and then he advocates with them, and lastly, he acts. God acts on their behalf. And again, there's all sorts of passages where you could look at where uh, God steps in on behalf of, of, of particular people, orphans, widows, and so forth. He steps in and he moves on their behalf. Um, this is one particular passage from Psalm 10, verse 17. Oh Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their, that's supposed to be heart. That's my typo. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear. Don't miss this. No. So God bends down. He inclines his ear. You incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed. Listen, so that man who is on the earth may strike no more. In other words, God's not going to tolerate evil forever, folks. That's good news for you and for me. God's not going to put up with it forever. He, w- he just won't. But right now, he's bending his ear, inclining his ear. Why? To do justice. To do justice for the fatherless and the oppressed. God acts on their behalf. And so I just, before we jump into some very practical things, I just want to ask you this question. For you. For your family. What would it look like for you to ally with them? What would it look like you, for you to advocate for them? What would it look like for you to act on their behalf? I want to highlight some opportunities here. Just we, for us as a church family, this has been in our DNA. We've talked about this every year for years on end now. But our opportunity for obedience and ministry, first of all, and when I say first of all, I'm not, that's not a throwaway phrase in this moment. First of all. The most important of all is that you and I step into prayer and care. We genuinely pray um, uh, about these things and for these families who are engaged in this, and we express our care for them. And I'll just say, for so many in here, you have already done this. You pray for people. You pray for kids. You step in. If a new uh, kiddo comes out of the foster system and into one of our families for however long he or she may be there, and you, hey, do you need diapers? Do you need formula? Do you need this? Do you need that? How can we help? I got a stroller. I know a friend. Great. Fantastic. We care. That's awesome. Let's continue to live that way. We also want to be people who pray. And just this week, uh, we had. Um, a couple of families, uh, their kids who had been with them for a while were then placed back into a different family situation. And, uh, and it's, it's hard on everybody. So here in a minute, Carrie is going to lead us in prayer in particular uh, for those families. But we commit first, first of all, first of all, we commit to prayer and to care. Secondly, 
some of you may want to take a step beyond that and say, hey, I want to, you know, kind of get my hands on this. Uh, there's, there's babysitting. If, if you're going to babysit um, somebody, a kiddo who's in the foster care system, you have to be certified. It is not um, the full thing. This is, it's actually a, a fairly um, short process to get certified uh, to babysit. But it is a real gift to have families who have foster kids um, in our church family to be able to know, hey, here are some people that you can call who are certified, who are certified to babysit. And again, it doesn't take long, and uh, hopefully soon we'll have an opportunity uh, for some of you to step uh, into that certification process. A third one um, is what is technically called respite care. Uh, If you're not familiar with this, you might call it overnight babysitting. So uh, on occasion, uh, some of the uh, families in our church family who are foster families need to get out, get away, go to a wedding or a funeral or something else. And uh, you can imagine you can't just leave uh, foster children with anybody. Uh, They have to be uh, certified as respite care. It's a little bit longer process and a little bit more difficult. There's more stuff, training involved and that kind of thing. But this is a moment where you could step in and do that. Some of our families have experienced kids who are, you know, kind of, uh, they're, they're on the more difficult end of things. And so just to provide them an opportunity uh, to um, step away, to get some perspective, to take a breath, what it, to get some sleep, whatever it may be, respite care is a step that some may need to consider. Fourthly, some of you want to sign up and um, go ahead and take the step of becoming foster parents to open your home for a limited time, however long it may be, uh, to um, a child or children who come into your home and then and then move out of your home, get, get placed into different situations. You may need to take that step. God may be calling you to take that step. And I'll just pause here and speak on behalf of many foster families in our church family. Is it hard is the question that I most often get. What's the answer to that? Oh, God, absolutely it's hard. Absolutely. I mean, there, there are folks in the room right now who, who know just how hard it is. Uh, and the, the objection, not the objection, the question comes back like, oh, golly, I don't know. I don't know if I could give full-hearted love to someone and then watch them walk out the door. And my response to that is always, you're the exact person who needs to step into that then. Because you, like, you want to give full-hearted love to a kid so that they are, it is, I mean, love, trans, God uses love to transform people. So you want to be, I mean, like that, we don't want the half-hearted lovers. We want people who are all in on this. So yeah, it's hard. Can I ask you a question? What in life, what in life that is worth it is not hard? The vast majority of things that are of value in life are hard. Foster care is hard. It is. But some of you may be called by God to step into that. And lastly, some of you may be called to step into adoption. Just to say, you know what, not, not on a temporary basis, but on a permanent basis. We are stepping, we're opening our home, we're opening our family. It will change our family system. Yes, it will. It will. And you will be changed and that kiddo will be changed. Man, yeah. Some of you need to take that step and open yourself. And again, is it hard? Yes, it's hard. It's hard to wait. It's hard to receive. It's hard to plan. It's hard. It's hard. But 
it's, it's worth it. So the, the second question that I often get is, man, I, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can do this. Well, let me just say, you don't have to do it alone. In our church family, multiple families have already stepped into this process in one level or another. And God may very well be taking today to stir you up to step into that process as well. Here, we've got a very couple-minute video, just a brief snippet of people who have said yes to this and how some of their lives changed. This is just from our church family. You're not in this alone. Watch this video. Pure and unfound religion inside of our God and Father is this. Keep oneself unstained from the world, that's true, but to visit, watch over widows and orphans in their distress. These are just some of the people who've stepped into that. You're not alone in this. Built into our DNA is that. As I said earlier, there are families that just this week took kiddos who had been with them and, and uh, sent them into different family situations. Hard on both, and so we wanted to take a moment and just pray. Just pray for them. Carrie's going to lead us, and then we've got this great hymn about Jesus being the solid rock upon which we stand in all the chaos of our world, personal and otherwise. He's got a great place to stand, Jesus, the solid rock. So Carrie's going to lead us in prayer, and then we'll stand together and sing this great old hymn. Let's pray.
God, I thank you um, for gathering us in this place. Thank you for those gathered at home and how you unite each one of us uniquely. And uh, we can say that we are who we are because of the, the life that you have given us, the people that you have put in it, and the way that you have shaped us. God, the same can be said for um, our children who come to us through foster or adoptive care. and uh, You're shaping their story, and you're beginning to form your plan in their life, and they're learning to trust in you. God, I want to thank you specifically for these children who uh, we have launched back into a reality that may seem strange to them, but we know that it's not strange to you. God, I thank you for bringing them into this place. I thank you for the families who bravely answered yes, who welcomed them into their house and into their, into their world. They've introduced them to concepts like love and trust. God, they brought them into a church where we could come alongside them and we could show them your love and we could open your word with them. God, I thank you for the opportunity that you gave us. And I thank you for the boldness to say yes. God, I pray that the seeds that were planted in the lives of these little people, that you would continue to grow those seeds over time, that you would uh, invest in them through the people in their new circumstance who actually love you. God, that they would point these children to you continually. God, I pray for all the days of their lives that they would be able to look around and see the world through a lens that you have provided. One that's filled with love and hope and truth. God, I pray that they would be able to uh, move forward in, in this world in a way that speaks boldness to the testimony that you have created in their life. God, I thank you again for opportunities. God, I feel like you give us that word and you give us these examples and you show us the people around us that are saying yes and just the right time in just the right way that maybe just maybe we could be part of that too and i thank you that we are a church that says yes and i thank you for entrusting us with these children i thank you that we get to know their names and see their faces and i pray god that you would keep that with us forever that we would be able to invest in their lives and the lives of others just like them god unapologetically let us move from this place that we would be brave enough to say yes just yes. God, thank you again for letting us serve and letting us worship. God, I pray for those families who, while they love deeply, they may have a sense of grief, and I pray that you would meet them in that place, that you would restore their strength and give them joy, that they'd be ready when the phone rings again to say yes. God, let us be the church that always says yes and is ready to come alongside them and run this race together. I know it's exhausting. It must be. But they're ready and they're willing. God, I pray that as long as there's opportunity that we would say yes. Amen.